Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates. In today's episode, I'm talking to great bassist and composer Scott Colley. We not only talk about his longtime relationship with Jim Hall, with Chris Potter, uh, Andrew Hill and Herbie Hancock. We also talk about the very special time when he subbed in the great Wayne Shorter Quartet. Uh, we talk about his relationships to drummers Brian Blade and Bill Stewart. Uh, and we also listened to a song from Empire, one of my favorite recordings of him. And he he talks about the music while we listen to the music. So he had some insight into that. And it was really, really inspiring to talk to him. He's always amazing, I think, on the bass as a musician in general. I'm always amazed by his ability to have his ego in check while really adding to the music big time. Also, we talk about studying with Charlie Hayden and much more, you'll see. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to this channel, leave a comment if you like. And if you would like to support this podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Pablo Held. It really helps me to develop the series and put out more interviews in the future. So thank you. And if you are like me, I always take notes when I uh, talk to people or when I uh, listen to an interview myself. And I don't want to forget the things that I find inspiring. So I need a notebook. So I put out one myself. This is called Investigation Notes. You can find this on my Bandcamp page. And it has music paper, staff paper. And uh, you can write down all the things that you don't want to forget in it. So get that on my Bandcamp page. And yeah, happy investigating. Take care. When I listen to you, I always have the feeling that you are very, very good at keeping your ego in check. And I don't mean that in a way where you're holding something back or anything, because you seem like you're ready to jump into whatever is happening or make something happen in the moment, right, right there. But, and there's moments where you leave a lot of space or even don't play in very, very active situations. So I was wondering about that, how you, yeah, how you worked on keeping your ego in check so you don't inter the ego doesn't interfere as much or doesn't ha have such power over you that it stifles you into showing off or something you know mm. uh, well thanks for the kind words i mean one of the things that i've thought about over many many years of of uh making music and i've learned from my mentors that whenever i'm approaching a, a particular situation in music to always ask myself, you know, what's the what's the best, um, what's the most powerful thing I can do in this moment to, and I don't mean power in terms of volume or any anything else or speed or or power in in the way that a lot of people think about power, but the most effective, powerful way to um, approach a particular moment. And many times, if you ask yourself that question and you're constantly, it's, it's, a, it's like a mantra for me in a, in a way um, that I'm always asking myself that question. And in, in moments of music, it could be the answer is burst of fast notes. It could be something yeah. loud or, or disruptive or, uh, or all kinds of things, but it could also mean stop playing. And, and very often, the answer is put something very simple or very or nothing in the space, and that's going to help. So the the um, the objective for me 
or the the goal is to to really just listen to every moment and listen to what's going on in the entire group and try and anticipate the intention of the entire group and not just what my particular uh, will is for that moment. Yeah. And trying to look at the whole picture as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> I always I practice this in terms of when I'm listening music um, and when I'm playing with others is the, the, um, the exercise or the, the process of really spreading my attention throughout the entire group and all of what's going on. Uh, and that, that's always a challenge as musicians. We practice uh, focusing on, on really um, detailed things and trying to hone our playing and our, our understanding of music and our, our vocabulary and, and our facility on the instrument and ability to get around. But really all of that should be abandoned in my mind, especially in, well, in all music, but especially improvised music, mm. uh, music where you're creating, uh, you know, spontaneous composition where you're creating the content as well as the, the um, execution of the of the ideas and and the you know every aspect of it right so you want to kind of like put yourself within the group the equal member not more not less and this is you know I, I think about this a lot when i'm when i'm writing music and um even in terms of when it's my own group yeah you know when i've i've uh, decided the set list or I've written the music or something like that. I still want to eventually, you know, I may um, tell everybody, well, this is sort of what it's about. And here's the, here's the music and the written music, give them as much information as I can about what my preconceptions were for that piece. But once I then begin the process of the rehearsal performance, recording, whatever it is, is to step back and put myself in the center of um, of all that's going on, yeah, and trying to respond in that way. And um, it's also very critical, you know, how how you interact with other people in um, trying to describe what you want, because it's very easy, you know, it, it's it's important to kind of. Um, develop a rapport and understand who you're speaking to and what they have to offer, what their strengths and uh, in the music are and how you can make them feel open. Some people you can say certain things to, I, I guess I'm going off on a tangent, but you know, you can Perfect. say certain things to somebody and they go and they shut down, you know, and then all these possibilities are, you know, other people, they have no, you know, you can say whatever you want and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's, it's, a, it's a part of, uh, you know, developing relationships in the music. Not I mean, just, it's an, it's uh, an art form in itself, talking to musicians absolutely. about the music. Who were people that, where you were fascinated by the way they would talk to their, uh, band members mm -hmm. and also to, to you maybe. Well, I have many, many uh, mentors in that in that area, people that I think about often. 
that I was really fortunate to be uh, in their band and see how they respond. And that's one of the best, you know, I mean, it's the, one of the most amazing learning experiences just to see the really subtleties, the way people work with other musicians. And, and um, I, I think a lot about Andrew Hill. Yeah. Um, uh, when I first met Andrew, we we were uh, forming a sextet or he he was you know it was he he had written a bunch of new music and just kind of returned from kind of a hiatus for several years and moved back to new york and wanted to start this sextet and i was you know so excited to be a part of that group and i remember the first rehearsal and he had written some chord changes and then he had written a bass line and um, I think I had asked him, you know, do you, do you like it when I uh, play the chord changes behind the soloist or when I just play the bass line? And Andrew was very um, poetic in his music, but also in, in the way that he would speak to others. He was really an incredible um, uh warm and generous person um but he, he just said he said uh i i i don't play the bass you play the bass and then he laughed mm. and that was the only thing he ever said to me and, and then we ended up playing <laughs> the sex ted and trio and i made yeah. a duo i think i made a duo recording with him and and um some stuff with other horn projects, a big band, you know, I ended up over the course of the next five or six years, um, playing with him all the time. And, um, and, uh, he would just want to, he, he just wanted to see what I would, how I would respond. And he didn't want to assert his will on my approach to it. And he was very patient in letting me find my way yeah. in his music, which was, you know, music that I, you know, his language, I, I had listened to this music a ton over the, over the years, but when you're in the middle of it and how to respond to the way he uh, approached playing in the rhythm section or even just really specific things was so unique. And I, I found myself over the course of years constantly having a question, but not, you know, <laughs> not really answering it after that point. But actually, we had a lot of great conversations. But um, I guess he he's one. Um, Herbie is another uh, great example of like not telling you what to do or what he wants you to do. Uh, mm -hmm. At least in the projects that I did, which were mostly very, you know open and a lot of free playing um yeah. or free uh maybe very loose um, i know what you mean i mean you played in the kind of couple of the last projects of herbie which were more like playing you know open situations of course there was some some orchestra stuff and and uh, others right. but uh i think it was mostly quartet either with uh, gary thomas or bobby hutchison right and, and some trio work maybe Mm -hmm. Terry Lynn Carrington. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, we did some things uh, with orchestra with the Chicago Symphony, which was amazing. But that to me was a very different. Like then I, he would, you know, he would say, "Open it up, open it up." But I kind of saw it as I, I, my role is stepping back to what we were talking about before. It was like hold this down and give these other ninety people something yeah. to <laughs> something to connect to rhythmically. But in the um, in the smaller group things, it was very much like um, sometimes going out and, and playing for a half hour, 45 minutes before we'd ever um, approach any material. And we had a lot of songs that we could go to, but but those were always kind of like later and after we've explored some other textures. So My, my uh, assumption is that Herbie during that time was really, really impressed and uh, uh, influenced by the new Wayne Shorter Quartet. And I think most right. most of his projects were leaning into that during that time. Uh, if, if it wasn't promoting a record or something, were le leaning mm -hmm. into, into that direction. Yeah. Yeah, and even at that time, I, I remember trying to, to like see if I could narrow, you know, or kind of, um, uh, kind of be the goad is just to kind of push him in the direction of maybe writing some material down. Oh, but yeah. it never, you know, he, the only, the, um, I mean, he, he's, that's a yeah whole interview in itself, just how he approaches, uh, harmony and, and, uh, spontaneous composition. Yeah, and we need to talk about know, this, can, Scott. We need to talk oh, about okay. it. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of times where I would like, what is that? Play that again. And he'd play it again and it would be different. You know, so, yeah. you know, I, and I do remember sitting there with score paper and trying to like, you see these voicings coming by and you go, okay, that would make a, you know, let's make that into something that we could work in as a group. And then by the time you circle around to it again, he plays it again and it's different. Yeah, and it was it was very difficult to to like get him his mind to to stop long enough to go to stop yeah, creating this. Yeah, we you just say you know I remember having a discussion with him and asking him about a um, a sus chord. You know how do you approach something and he and he just he'd play it and then. And I have to say, Andrew was very much this way as well, like writing something uh, to give you like in a way I, I um, I'm stepping back. But with Andrew, I always said, you know, don't don't write me chord changes anymore, you know, mm -hmm. because his chord changes, it would maybe give me an idea of what he wanted in the bass, you know, as as the root of that chord, but it really didn't give me an idea of what's really in the music. So wow. what I really wanted was the score so that I could just see what, you know, because it was so linear, these different lines working. And and as the lines converged in any particular moment, it's it's these lines going in different directions and then whatever they... Um, whatever texture they, they make at that moment, that's, that's what I want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know what you, because you know, Andrew was funny. I mean, he writes something that say, you know, B flat seven. 
and it would have every note in the score would be but the ones from not the in a yeah. not in a B flat seven. You'd be like, okay, that's you know that's not helpful. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, um, going back to Herbie, that is very similar in that. Uh, mm. Obviously, the results and the way that they dealt with music and 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 were very different, but in that way, very similar. It's like um, they learned to go so far beyond the box of of um, traditional harmony or the way that we think about jazz harmony or the way jazz harmony is taught. It wasn't that wasn't even a um, uh, an element to consider anymore. You know? But did you get some more straight answers out of Herbie, considering his harmonic concept of maybe exchanging chords or um, functions or? Um, not, not really. <laughs> I mean, uh, in some levels, you know, just just in terms of um, talk a great deal always about um, tension and creating tension for long periods and deciding when and you know in when the when the release or the the when to finally you know we we would do this in terms of of harmony and also in terms of rhythm yeah. you know specifically playing in different um time signatures simultaneously yeah or not having uh you know and terry lynn and, and herbie and i talked quite a bit about this as i recall um, mm. about you know um creating tension for long periods of time by playing like I would play in one specific key and he would play in another key and Gary Thomas or, or Bobby might, you know, play in a different key. Mm. And then we're also experimenting with different, um, it could be polyrhythms related or it could be actually totally different, um, fundamental, um, quarter notes, for example you know, right. that, that would happen for a long period of time. And then when you'd find, you know, it was like kind of a game to see who was going to resolve first, who was going to first, who was going to first decide to give it up and, and to join the others right. or to align, you know, and, and then within a, a trio or a quartet, you know, aligning with one person and in a way, ignoring the other yeah. was, again, back to, back to spreading your tension around just how that would work. You know, and the kind of tension that you can create, and then how long do you really want that ten that that tension to build before you finally resolve it? And when you finally play something that's in the same key, in the you know, then then it, it locks in, this, in a different like way. Like the, the sky would open, and it would just yeah. be. Then you just want to play the simplest groove for the longest time, and you know, just over C seven or whatever it was, you know, just yeah. like, and then that would be the the resolution. So not, uh, so I guess the answer to your question is not so much in specific terms about harmony, uh, but definitely in terms of, of, of tension and resolution mm. of ideas and, and textures. When you guys were on tour, did you listen to the recordings from the gig? Yeah. Kirby also? I, yeah. He, well, he was always, yeah, he liked to listen in the bus after the gigs. Um, right after the gigs, he would listen to it. Yeah. Cool. 
I wasn't always so in, you know, a lot of times <laughs> I just go to my bunk and go do my thing, what, you know, yeah, go to sleep or whatever. But, um, yeah. Would you be yeah, surprised what, what he was listening for or what he was pointing out? Because everybody listens to music differently and everybody maybe pays attention differently. Yeah, I don't remember specifically big differences in the things we were hearing, but you know, we would we would talk about things and then sometimes another interesting thing about that that band too was that we would play some long sound checks that would go on and on, as I recall. Um, especially with the trio. Um and with Gary as well, is we'd play these long sound checks and then just stop playing when they'd open the house to let the people in. And I'd go and eat some food or something. Herbie would chant. And then we, so like a half hour, 45 minutes, we had been exper experimenting on all this, working on sound, you know, making sure we did the sound check, but also just then just playing. And I really right. found this to be a great, um, a great process for growth in a, in, in open improvisation, you just play a bunch and then you'd leave the stage and, and, and then you'd come back out on stage and that feeling that you left off with, or yeah. even some of the ideas that you had left off with, you just start doing it with another couple thousand people in the room. You yeah. Know, it becomes it more like, casual. You know, it was so, yeah, in that, in that regard, I really love the process. Mm of, of how that band, you know, um, and generally, as I recall, we would do, you know, long concerts and play over some really very loose forms. Um, there was one particular arrangement of dolphin dance yeah. that he had that was, that, um, evolved over time, but it was basically like one chorus of dolphin dance could take 10 minutes or it could take an hour and a half. And yeah. it was just kind of different cues of different sections, but you don't know what the next section is going to be, but someone would cue out of a thing. And sometimes they were short, sometimes yeah. they were long. And then later on we would, we would maybe get into some actual songs, mm. you know, yeah, like playing, um, you know, some of Herbie's tunes or, or, Terry Lynn's or, or standards or whatever we were playing at the time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, I think you were also in the first band where he reintroduced uh, actual proof to the, to the repertoire. I think in the, in the quartet was Bobby. That's the first time he, he brought it back after the, such a long time. And I'm curious oh, wow. how you learned that song. Um, Well, like all, like all of those songs, I listened to them since I was, you know, 12 or 13, 14 years old, maybe hearing that music for the first time. So the, the parts of the, the song, you know, that I, I kind of knew what, what to do in in regards or, or what what had been done and and with a lot of a lot of the music you know playing with someone like herbie or musicians that you've been listening to for that long 
it's like I'll go and reference the the original songs uh, if I need to figure out specifics on form, um, you know, lines or or harmony or just making sure that I understand where it's coming from, you know, or or what parts of the music there are. And then at that point, I really just put it completely away hmm. because uh, it's the, the, there's a lot of weight. If, if you're not careful, there's a lot of weight of the history of, of a song like that, that can come on to you and keep you from really exploring it on your own terms in this modern moment or this particular moment in time and, and the knowledge that, you know, in other words, um, you know, musicians like, well, there's no musicians like Herbie, but, uh, you know, all my, the, the favorite band leaders that I've worked with were always like, you figure out how, like we, what we said about Andrew, it's like, yeah. you figure out, we want to see what you do with this, not what, you know, Paul Jackson did or mm. not what Ron Carter did or right. blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, you know, those influences are huge in my mind. Mm. But really, at that point that it's that that you're in that moment making this music again, it's very important to kind of for me to just try and shed that as much as possible mm. and to deal with it on your own terms. Mm. Um, so that because there's there's that's the only reason to revisit a song like that after all these years. Mm -hmm. If you're just going to try and replicate, uh, you're never going to do it as well. Absolutely. in the same way that they did it. So if, if there's any reason to re to rehash a, a song like that, uh, shouldn't use that term, uh, to, <laughs> to, to revisit a song like that would be to really to, to try something completely new. Right. And, you know, so once you understand the, the nuts and bolts of the song, he's just trying to like then shed all that and, and, um, and, and, you know, approach it in a way, and and again, those those musicians that I mentioned, band leaders, that would encourage you to do that, mm. and have the patience to wait for you to figure out how what direction that might be, mm. and that then that um, can challenge them to approach um, to approach these songs in a very different way as well. So, mm. and how. Um, how curious is Herbie in terms of his excitement to, I mean, how, how curious is he towards you? You know, did he ask you a lot of questions about your approach to the music, your approach to certain pieces or your approach to playing in general? Well, he's, he's an incredibly inquisitive, um, curious person, um, in general anyway about music, about people, about other, uh, other forms of art. Um, and so, um, you know, one thing I, I really remember is that he, he could get involved in something and time would just disappear. Time is like, you know, clock time yeah. would just disappear. And, you know, 
he was, um, which I found to be really amazing. Like if he really focused on something and it could be a very simple progression or a thing and it would just be like, he just, you know, and, and there could be a lot of stuff going on in a sound check and people moving around and moving equipment and stuff going on. It'd be like, and he had, he has an amazing focus in that, in that, um, in that way. And to me, that's, that's so inspiring is that you can just like really get into something and then everything else disappears completely Yeah. Uh, to the point where he was late, you know, <laughs> all the time. And, uh, my daughter who was, um, I don't know, like three or four and she came out on tour with us and we were waiting to go somewhere and I think we were, we were doing a short bus ride. So my family was with me and, and, uh, and he got on the bus and, and she said, Herbie, you're a slowpoke." She was sitting in the driver's seat of this tour bus. <laughs> and he, he looked at me like he was pissed. Like you told her to say that. I said, I didn't, I didn't tell her to say that. You know, anyway. he, he would get involved in something, um, in a, in, but seriously, in, in a musical situation and just everything else would disappear. Hmm. And now I'm thinking of it. I can't remember what your original question was. That's so fine. I don't, um, know I, I don't know if I answered it. <laughs> uh, I was I was um, I was asking about did, did he ask you a lot of questions? Yeah, I guess that was the point I was trying to get at. He was very <laughs> curious Yeah. Uh, you know, about everybody's. Um, you know, and again, not not just about music, but your personal life and what was going on and how you're mm. feeling. And, you know, it's very, um, very uh, concerned and genuine. Uh, you know, and another part. another question um, regarding Herbie and, and where I was always. Uh, um, yeah, I was always asking myself how what their relationship was or did they have a relationship or how did they view each other you know um was herbie uh, checking out a lot of stuff that andrew is doing i know they played on the same hank mobley record i think but mm -hmm. that's about it i think in terms of where we could see them together you know they've used a couple of uh, similar people obviously but uh, and they came up in a you know similar time but i was I never read something That's somewhere you know, where I never, Herbie said something about him or vice versa. Yeah, I I never had that conversation with either of them, as I recall. But it's interesting. I mean, they're both from the south side of Chicago. Mm. Um, and of similar age. And uh, I guess Andrew's a little was a little older. Um But I, I definitely hear connections in the way that they think about music, and and uh, but I never had that conversation though. But it's it's interesting that that they're you know, although Andrew had that uh, record where they uh, and and a lot of people said that he was born in Haiti, um, because it was on, on the liner notes of some one of his Blue Note records. I'm not mm -hmm. sure Could be, that yeah. he was um, and but ends up that that was just not true. But then when people would ask Andrew about it, he just, he wouldn't deny it. And he would just not, he would just get, it was very, 
good at being very um, vague and, yeah. and just kind of floating off in a conversation in another direction. <clears throat> so, but he was born in, uh, he was born in Chicago. Mm. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of people in my life were born in Chicago. My wife was born on the South side as well. Uh, mm. But um, it, yeah, I never, I never had the conversation with, with either one of them. Okay. Um, when I was listening to you, I think your latest recording, there's a song, it's called Bridge of Dawn. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, curious because I had to think of Andrew uh, regarding that song. Um, and I was, I'm just curious, is, is, uh, is there anything that you, that reminds you of Andrew in that song or is that just something that I made up maybe? <laughs> I listened to it a couple no. of times, and it, it really there was moments where, like, yeah, I I could hear him playing that song also, and uh, oh, I don't know, it's a beautiful. Well, that means song. a lot. I, I appreciate it. Um, no, uh, nothing specific. It's just when I wrote it, I thought about him, and I thought about just um, you know simple melodies, and it's this it's. Uh, It's a simple song in a lot of ways, uh, and just somehow the feel of it and the way it should move, and and that was that was it. I mean, I again, almost like what we were talking about before about approaching other people's music that has a lot of weight or history. It was like I didn't want to like specifically. Uh, I didn't take specific elements um, consciously of yeah. the things that he was that that he did as a composer but i just sat down and thought of him you know okay yeah and and i might have written that um partially on the piano and partially on the bass as well so which is something i often do oh yeah yeah and is it something that you always did or that where the piano kind of came later or into the compositional process Well, I'm not a good piano player uh, at all. Uh, but but the the and and the kinds of uh, you know I I uh, work on the piano to understand harmony and to have the visual aspect of of uh, voicings and see how things work and 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 all of that. But because I'm so much freer. Um, to express uh, and to create new melodies and, and new ideas on the bass mm. that I like to <clears throat> a lot of times approach from, from that, you know, from that angle on the bass. And then, then when I need to figure out the harmony that I'm thinking about and I, and I need to clarify it or, or to, to, to make sure that I'm able to write down, um, something that will will allow the the other musician who i'm trying to to present this music to to give them the information in the clearest way possible then i'll yeah. you know move to the piano but my tendency is because my p piano playing is so limited it becomes very vertical mm. and when i'm playing the bass and the a lot of the music that i like to play is a lot of times again based on more linear things and how they how they converge at that moment. Mm. Now, a 
a, a great, you know, tra uh, you know, pianist such as yourself is somebody like, you, you know, you've transcended all that stuff and you can do, you can move linear or, you know, horizontally, vertically, any, any way that you mm. want through the instrument. For me, it's, it's, it's limited. So I tend to move around and it's also, you know, composing away from anything. Yeah. Uh, any instrument is just thinking of ideas and then, and then imagining them. And then maybe I'll move to the bass and then maybe I'll <clears throat> start. I, I use Sibelius generally as a tool, mm. uh, to, you know, a notation tool. So then I'll start maybe inputting things and then I'll move and I'm like, well, what's that that I'm thinking here? And then I'll move to the mm. piano. So I'm like kind of in this room where I am just like moving in a circle. Yeah. And, and also that that's really helpful for me when I get stuck compositionally mm. in a moment, it's generally because I'm stuck looking at it from this angle, either on the right. bass or at the piano or, or away from the instruments. Um, and if I change instruments or, or, or leave the instrument, I, I see, I see where the, where I'm stuck. Yeah. And then I very great. often move, move right past it immediately. And yeah. sometimes that's just like, um, you know, I like to run. So I go like, I'll write some and then I'll get stuck and then I'll just run and then I'll come back or I'll just take a walk or I'll walk the dog or whatever. And then, and then yeah. I come back and then there's a solution. Yeah. It's when I sit there on this from the same angle, you know, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result, whatever that is. <laughs> quote is you know it's like yeah okay well let me just look at it from you know it's as if i i really think of it as like you know as an object and you look at it and you turn it and then right. you go oh it's totally different from that angle and let me see yes. what it so you know and if i'm approaching it from or even just writing from the base where i feel very um you know fluid or comfortable it's like I'm seeing something from a melodic standpoint, and then I go from from a, a bass perspective, mm. or or double stops or chordal ideas or something. Then I'm looking at it from different angles, even yeah. on the instrument itself. So that's that's a lot of times what I do in the process of, of writing. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it is it is something that goes through all of your projects, I think, or most of them that I know. Uh, but um, my favorite record of yours is Empire. Um, hmm. And that's a record where I feel, and as I said, I feel this in other projects as well, but there I'm so struck with, it seems like you're writing for the players. Uh, I mean, uh, especially Frizzell, in that project, I, I felt it was the perfect, I mean, you could put him anywhere and he'll be the perfect mm -hmm. choice, but um, him playing uh, for uh, Sophia, or I mean, or the, the tune in seven, the, the second one, it just feels like there could be nobody else who, who should play this in that moment with that combination. And I was mm. wondering about that, how you write for certain people and, and how you envision a certain, um, how things work together. Well, 
for for me there i really don't write music um just to write music i'm i'm always thinking of a particular individual um occasionally i've written just let me just write a song yeah. but very rarely like mm. it it's a uh, so that's that um that recording was was a good example of that is that I thought of the people that I'd like to put together um, in a in a room to see what would happen, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you know, my favorite musicians of all time um, are in that band. And um, and a few people, I think I'm not sure if if Ralph Alessi had played with Bill, for example. Mm-hmm before that recording, I'm not sure, but um, obviously I know Brian and, and Bill had played together. But anyway, uh, you know, I, you know, the decision of how to put that together was definitely who's gonna, who's gonna be involved and, and then writing the music, you know, then just picturing uh, how they might respond to this this idea and what they're, you know, there's a lot of strengths in that band, but a lot of really different textures to be used. Mm-hmm. And then how, what if I put this combination and, you know, with, um, you know, what if Craig Taborn plays and, and it's this texture or, or whether it should be piano, you know, maybe those, those kind of things I would think about. Um, yeah. And to me, that makes the writing really a lot easier. Mm-hmm. because I can just imagine it. Then the challenge comes again is, is abandoning your preconceptions about how they're going to, how they're going to digest this material and how they're going to, to play over it mm. and deciding if there is something to be said to focus the song itself. If it goes off, if it seems like it's going off into the weeds, but most you know, with a band like that, it's it's basically like like I just want to go. Okay, here's a tempo. Let's start here, and then just yeah. and then just again stepping back into my role or my feeling that you know I'm I'm an equal member of this and I'm not going to force it in any direction. So, mm. and when I abandon those preconceptions, the the what I end up with, all, almost always is something much better than I imagined. And you become more so, of a sideman in, inside of your own project. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so with all the music that I, you know, all the bands that I put together now, that's really how I try and approach it because I, I want to play with people that, um, <clears throat> you know, there's already the reason why I, ask them to play with me and why, or, or, you know, why I'm drawn to their playing. So I want to, I want to, um, be a part of that and not just put a band together and try and assert my will over that band. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, that's very much, uh, how, how I consider, you know, all the things that I, And that's why, you know, I do a lot of collaborations in that regard to, you know, where everybody's writing, everybody's um, um, contributing equally to 
to putting the project together. So uh, one thing I remember about that particular about um, Empire is there there's that song called Tomorrowland um, mm. that I play as a duo with Bill. And it's just these two lines that kind of move around and then we play open for a while and then it might be a couple chords written in there, but mostly it's just, it's just two lines. And, uh, and I put it in front of him and it's rubato. So there's no indicated feeling tempo. I didn't write anything in there. It just like, and we started playing it and I had ma imagined it moving really kind of quickly, yeah. you know? No, that's the wrong song. Shit. How does tomorrow land go? Anyway. We can like put it on. This line, Let's put it on. This okay. I don't know how well it will sound over my ear pods. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it on quickly because also I can, I know it for a long time, but I can't differentiate the, the titles uh -huh. so much. Let's go. sound it's coming across okay yeah it's beautiful so this is just like the introduction part and when he started playing the melody and we were rehearsing it right from here oh no I imagined this moving when I wrote it uh, three times as fast. Yeah. At least, you know what I mean? And and so that was a, a thing. It's like it, so we were playing in a rehearsal, just me and him sitting there playing this thing, and we played it, you know, a few times through just to see how it mo would move. And I just had to, I, I just decided, okay, I'm going to surrender to it, and we'll record it this way and see. We can always do it faster if, you know, it's, it's, it wouldn't be a problem for me to say, you know, could we move this faster? Yeah. But then what came of it to me was, you know, was much more interesting. I remember it did change where, where I ended up putting it. I had written the whole recording in, in a particular arc with oh, okay. a particular sequence in mind. So beginning to end, how is this going to go for, you know, an hour or whatever, however long, the, you know, it was going to last. And then I had a certain sequence in mind and how one song would move into the next song and all of that. And I do remember that that when we ended up playing this and, and, and the recording, this had such a slower feel. It changes where it went in the sequence of songs. Mm. You remember that? Yeah. But to me, the, the, the thing of, of just right writing the music down is just the very beginning of the process of composition right. in my, my mind. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, once I begin then to play it with others, I'm going to want to, um, change, change how it maybe change things around, but then also it's just the beginning of the life of that song. Um, I tend to rewrite stuff a lot yeah. as, as I, as I see how other people approach it. Yeah. Have you gone back to pieces from that record? Um, yeah, yeah, I have. And, uh, and we toured 
um, not with the full group, but uh, with Ralph and Craig Taborn and Brian after that, I think. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Nice. Sounds really nice. Oh, thanks. Also, the sound of the record is incredible. I really like it. Yeah, that was uh, uh, James Farber and um, Chris Allen. Uh, yeah. And we did that record, and then I think we recorded for two days at Sears Sound, and then actually edited the recording. That was an interesting process, actually. That was really um, it was intense, but it was really fun to do. Is that the two days after we recorded, we just set up with James Farber doing, you know, at in the in the booth at Sear, <clears throat> and then um, Chris would be in another room doing the edits, and then as we'd edit each song, we'd move them over to so so that uh, James was just dealing with sonic aspect of of the recording mm. and chris was just dealing with the editing portion of it right so we put the songs together and then so i would just move from room to room back and forth and we did that for two 15 hour days or whatever it's like wow. but just like usually a lot of times when i'm after i record I'll, I'll have a lot of time to sit and and but i i just for this i remember deciding that i just want to try and do it so like you decided while it's all fresh. So you decided on the takes during the recording. Um, not completely. Uh, you know, there may be some different takes. So I would do some listening in the lounge and then go with edit concepts mm. to Chris. Yeah. And then he would see if they would work and how they would work. And then once all of that was done, we'd move in with with uh, James, and he would he would mix. Mm. And so it was it was really quick, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was an interesting process because normally, like a I'm I'm working on on a project now um, with Edward Simon and Brian Blade, uh, yeah. second record of his Steelhouse and. And that's like, you know, we're all doing it remotely from different parts of the country with an engineer in San Francisco and, and you know, it's like going back and forth and it and it's and it's a lot more, you know, moves slow. So hang on, you're everybody's recording their own parts at their place? No, we, we recorded the record oh, okay. uh, in, yeah. uh, sorry, uh, in in Sonoma in in California after a tour. Okay. So we recorded in, in November before this shit hit the fan and mm. um and we couldn't travel so uh we had so we're just mixing and editing the record now but it's such a different i'm just saying it's just such a different process than actually just going in and trying to do it right away yeah yeah mm. but that was the process and to me the 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 process that you choose um in every aspect of the music and every aspect of, of writing or creating a, a, record, uh, a recording, uh, the process really affects the result always. Mm. 
Yeah. And that's true on your instrument. It's true within a rhythm section. It's true within a whole band, like how you, how you decide how to, to, I don't know, I may be getting a little vague, but just how, how to go about uh, making the music happen, how much written music you're going to put on a page, how much mm -hmm. you really want to tell people what to do or how much mm -hmm. do you want to leave out intentionally taking away pieces so that what they'll, so that they'll feel more open, you know, deciding whether the, the improvisation is going to go over just a baseline or, or you put chords involved and, or a melody or, you know, how is the meter, um, you know, how, how do you, uh, to me, that's a really interesting thing and then to see Absolutely. like a lot of times certain people, certain combinations of people, I want to give them much less information than I would give to in other situations hmm. just to see what would happen. Yeah. Let's maybe take an example of um, two drummers that you have worked with a lot uh, in your own projects, but also in other bands. Let's take Bill Stewart and Brian Blade. Let's take them. Uh, yes. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's put them in a room together. Yeah. Um, well, I, man, I saw part of your uh, interview with uh, with Bill, and it was great, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and yeah, I was I was thinking in the, in that regard, like we're talking about how much to put in front of somebody. Is like we did a I did a couple of trio records in around you know it was like twenty years ago. Mm. Um, Magic line with, and yeah, with Chris and and Bill, and it was so great to to just, I mean, I, you could just write, um, very little and just, you know, uh, just tr to try and, you know, uh, to, to create something that's just kind of a launching pad for what you want to have, what, you know, you're just kind of creating a direction and then saying, okay, here we go. And that's, um, and the examples of people that I, you know, composers that I think about when I write that way, you know, or, or attempt to write that way, be like, you know, Ornette or mm. Paul Motion, um, you know, those, the masters of like the eight bar, 10 bar thing that just kind of yeah. goes, okay, and here we go. And this is the direction we're going to go in. So that's kind of how I um, think about, you know, writing for, for that. And definitely don't write. I don't write at the piano mm. <clears throat> um, because that just kind of slows me down. It's just like, you know, yeah, for me. Um, but specifically, you were talking about Brian and 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 Bill are two of my very. I mean, it's just like where every quarter note. If you just if you decide that just like, okay, we're just going to play quarter notes all night. And I'm like, that's the shit. I'll just do that. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's like. This feels great. <laughs> so if you start from that point, which both those drummers do, or, you know, like, you know, just hearing them just like that on a ride cymbal. And then you go, that's always the best place to start from. If it, everything mm. feels great, it doesn't matter what you, you know, how yeah. complex or how simple something is but I, but definitely playing with the you know um i guess i'm it's a broken record in a way but 
it's kind of surrendering to to the that feel and going okay the things that i would play with bill is different than the things that i would play with brian yeah it the, the, the attack the where i would place the note in the groove can you go into different. detail not really <laughs> i mean i can't I, in a way i can but it, it uh you know trying to describe that stuff with words is almost like um you know it's it's uh it's yeah, i mean you have played you've played with them so for such a long time it's it's subconscious to the highest level i'm, I'm sure uh, you know but i'm sure at the beginning where you maybe played with them where you started to get to know them was there a thought process going yeah, but on? Like I, but even on that, I'd say it's not really conscious so much. Hmm. I mean, this, this to say that I spend a lot of time thinking about exactly where I want to place the note relative to, and I work with a metronome. I work with different things to make sure that I'm really consciously able to go, okay, well, with this groove, you know, with this feel, with this person, I'm going to want to place you know, uh, place the notes just so, because that, you know, the, the classic examples of, of that might be, you know, um, you know, Tony Williams and, um, Elvin Jones, for example, you know, mm. if you played with those, you know, there, there would be no way to think of, of, you know, four and more, you know, with Tony <laughs> playing the way he was yeah. at 18 years old with all that incredible energy and excitement, there's no way to, to think that that, um, music would succeed on the level that it did groove wise without Ron doing what Ron did. Right. Ron Carter going, being the center of, and, and like, placing the notes in a way that kept Tony from just going out off into outer space. You know, it's, it's so I guess that's kind of one of the more extreme examples of things. Cause I'm trying to think of things that you, you know, that everyone's kind of heard mm. that you can think of like how you would approach. So with, I don't even want to put words on it, honestly, with, with Bill and, and Brian, for example, you don't need to, if you um, don't feel like it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, there's different, it's, it, it's just a different, you know, you, and the things that they contribute, you know, even if you're playing over the same material at different times with each of them, it would be, it would change the way I would play for sure. How, you know, how much I would dig in, how much I would, um, you know, whether I would place my notes on, on the front of the beat, behind mm -hmm. the beat. And it also depends on how they, you know, depends on what groove they're playing mm -hmm. and where they might, you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, and, and then for, for me, for working on this stuff, it's just to really listen to stuff. If you're listening to, you know, um, is just to really fully immerse yourself into uh, single moments in music. I talk to people a lot about this. Is like how that's how I've I've worked on it. If you if you take a specific 
uh, groove and just listen to it a hundred times. You know, the first thing for me um, working on this, as I've used this a lot as an example, was was when I was 12 years old and I got obsessed with, it was, you know, there was LPs then. So it was the first side of Someday My Prince Will Come. And I would just listen to that over and over and over and over again until my mom would be like leaning down into the basement where I would listen to music. I had a Is everything okay? <laughs> I mean, she, she said, do you need a sandwich? Are you okay now? <laughs> and I mean, she, I mean, she was really worried about me. She had good reason to be worried. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was, that's what I did. You mm. see, you know, at that moment in music where, uh, where Paul Chambers put his quarter note or whether he played in two or whether he played in four and how that felt against Jimmy Cobb's quarter note, which was, you know, also another just, unbelievable example of right. the right. best ballad playing ever, mm. you know, mm. with, and, and when Wynton Kelly played this, he was carrying, you know, um, on that record, um, uh, oh, what's it called? Old, uh, folks. old folks. Yeah. That is just the, you know, and then how Miles's lines would affect, like he'd make a phrase and they'd play into double time. There was no, there was n nothing that existed at all without um, without understanding. Like you couldn't get any single element of, of what was going on from any instrument without understanding really how they related to each other. And to me, that's the key is going, well, that way, the reason why Paul played that note right there, because this happened and when John yeah. Coltrane did this phrase and seeing it all top to bottom, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, being able to see the whole picture. Yeah. And that was the first like really obsession that I got with, with, uh, um, with trying to figure out why something feels so good, you know, yeah. why is it so right? Yeah. You know, and then there was a lot of Miles records at that time. My Funny Valentine was another one. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and just going, you know, that, that that music could even exist was just, to me, just... Uh, Nobody could insane. compose this. Huh. Nobody. <clears throat> and, it can, it, it, and it can exist again in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, you know, that kind of inspiration in a new way can exist, mm. but not in that way. You know, did you, did but, you talk to Herbie about this record? Sorry to go back. Uh, but I think I did. I don't think he remembered that much about it as mm. I recall, but the, if, if I think I had a conversation with him because that was such an influence influential record. And I know it was, it was done live and I don't think they knew that they were being recorded. When they made that record, I think and, they also uh, didn't know that they weren't being paid, and that oh no, I mean they <laughs> they did know they did know, and this is why also a lot of the energy. I mean, I, I read it in the liner notes that Ron Carter later on wrote for for this album, and I th you oh, think no yeah, Miles informed oh. them that that uh, they weren't being paid because it was a benefit, uh, you know, situation. 
that could influence the band. It's <laughs> <laughs> rough. There was this box set that came out in, I think, the end of the 90s or so, uh, where um, they kind of put the, um, or there was actually, there's another take from from this from this concert where they play Autumn Leaves. I don't know if you've heard heard, heard this, but there's another. I don't think so. Yeah, um, I, I'll send it to you. Okay. So they play yeah. autumn autumn leaves, and I I created a um, uh, a playlist in my iTunes thing uh, of the exact order of the concert because I only listen to my funny Valentine on repeat on repeat and you know and then four and more, but to put the concert in the in the right order is really funny because oh, cool. your mind is so used to having you know my friend valentine as the first and then the next you know right. i think all of you is next I, i'm not sure but uh you know it's so used to having that musical moment and then that and it turns you around and see uh, you see how miles constructed the set on the spot and then it's really fascinating wow see. Yeah, that might be hot. Man, my head would explode, I think. Yeah. I just thinking of like, you know, my funny Valentine and just just the beginning of that, how how it begins. Yeah. And Herbie's you know, introduction and it's yeah. It's I was incredible. always amazed by by how Miles's trumpet sounds on the on the recording. There's a little bit of distortion on it also. It's a distortion and, and it's, and it's and it so adds to it. It has an edge, you know. Yeah, and uh, I think the recording with live at Carnegie Hall with Gil Evans and Hank Mobley and you know you know that one the orange one where they play with right. the orchestra and spring is here that's that's the distortion to the max you know but right. but the my funny Valentine the trumpet how it sounds always had this you know this sheer power and yeah. Uh, What's well, it's like he it sounds kind of like it's a cheap mic, but he's like right on it. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like he's really very close. close into it. So when he really lays in, but you know, it's it's funny after all these years of listening to it, it it's like I can't imagine it being any other way. Mm, yeah. Totally, yeah. But what it must have been like to be in that room when that yeah. music was being made. It's, yeah. Do you? I mean, uh, do you still get lost listening to that music? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, lost in a really the musical sense, because that's what happened to me. I, I'm still sometimes I've analyzed this music so much, this record so much, but still, if I don't listen very, very carefully, I get lost because they're so they're doing so much. Sometimes I'm like, where are mm -hmm. they in Stella by Starlight right now? You know, I've analyzed right. what they what they did, but still, the the 12 year old me or whatever, how old I was, listening to that. Still put, puts me back in that that situation where you I think when you're in a teenager you take things in so so thoroughly and so intensely that if you go back to the to that record after you're more grown up or whatever part of me is still the the teenager who who listens to it and who is like I don't understand anything that I they are doing <laughs> you know it's yeah definitely. I mean, I, yeah, you have to focus in and go, where are they in the form and the whole yeah. thing. But I, when I learned, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old, I was really fortunate to play with a lot of, um, uh, with a lot of older musicians who were really into 
those, you know, that era of miles and, and, uh, they say, well, check this out. And then next week we're going to play, um, this song or that song. And I, and I didn't know how to read when, you know, mm. until later, um, or I, I kind of, I could read a little bit and, um, but the great thing about it is start, I started out really learning things by ear. Perfect, and, yeah. and understanding that relationship that we were talking about, like why somebody does this and how, you know, and then learning chord changes by, by the texture that it created, not by the <clears throat> necessarily knowing what a chord, you know, yeah. if I saw a chord symbol, it was C sharp nine or, you know, C minor seven plus whatever. I just see, I I'd see the letter C and then I, my ear would build the rest of it. Yeah. That's how I start, you know, and then it wasn't until, you know, later, 15, 16, 17, when I started to learn more about the vocabulary and understanding, and then going to CalArts, where I studied, um, you know, trying to, to, to really understand harmony more. But that, to me, I, I felt was a really great benefit, because it also just really taught me to just to listen to stuff over and over and over, and then explore it and try and try and do it myself or hear, hear it, um, and, and, and see music as just an exploration and a way to connect with other people mm. rather than being something that I have to do. And it has to be, you know, or, or creating some sort of, um, anxiety or tension about how it has to be right in some way. Yeah. So, it's been interesting since this pandemic has started is that I've, I've, you know, I've had a lot more time to revisit some of those recordings that really influenced me and, and from a very young age. And it's been really, it's been great in a way. Can you One mention some, things. some of them that you now revisit? Uh, um, those two, um, Let's see what else. Um, last week it was the Goldberg variations, um, mm. and uh, Thelonious Monk Underground was the first record I ever had, mm. and that's on my short list to read because I haven't listened to that in forever and ever. I have a, I have my original LP up on the wall, yeah, of that record. Um, I think I. My I was twelve or eleven. My brother got it for me for my birthday, and it was and I just bought it for the cover. But it's what it's an amazing. Yeah. Record. It's an amazing record. It's an amazing um, cover too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think back then? I just thought, wow, this is this is some really. I didn't know. I mean, I I but it was exciting to me. And I, I, I was excited about it, too, because it was something that nobody else my age was really interested in. And there was something about that, or at least mm -hmm. people that I knew. Um, was, it, was, was this a situation that or, you liked? You know, a, few, a few older musicians, you know, that were older, meaning like three years older or something like that. And yeah. they, they, would, they would say, check this out. This is, you know, and, it, and to me, it was kind of, you know, um, I grew up in Los Angeles at a time when everybody was listening to whatever was happening in the late 70s, 
in popular music. And so for me, it was like kind of subversive, you know, like I didn't, you know, and then, and then when I discovered Ornette's music mm. and, um, all, and just suddenly that opened up. And then the first time I heard weather report, uh, you know, like suddenly just, just that discovery of, of things that nobody else seemed to be interested in, in my, in my, you know, junior high, high school, whatever. So those, those were the things that, that, that I was drawn to. Yeah. And I don't know why it's like the, the, the feeling, um, and understanding, you know, music as a language, but, you know, hearing something for the first time, but being conscious that it's a language and that they're, they're conveying ideas, but man, I don't know how this language works. I don't know, you know, and then, then being excited by that and then trying to figure out how it works. Yeah. And, and even now I realize, you know, you know, the, that figuring out is only getting me this far. It's like, I still have, you know, it's endless. It's like, you know, and I can revisit that stuff and then see it from a different angle, but it's, it's, it's still just as big a mystery to me now. Mm. That's beautiful. And even music that I've participated in, I really don't know what it is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> serious. It's like, wow, there's a lot, you know, so it, the excitement of, of embracing that mystery and not trying to, to, to think that I'm ever going to really understand what's going on in any given moment. Mm. I mean, that's true. It's true of life. For mm. Sure. You know, it's true of relationships and language and, and, um, situations, you know, we see things from such a small, you know, and, and I'm always trying to make that, that, that lens bigger yeah, so I can bigger, see yeah. more of the picture, mm. but realizing that it's, it's, it's still so limited. My preparation for these interviews is listening to the music constantly. And then there's times mm. where I have to um, remind myself that I was preparing for this moment for a long time already subconsciously, you know, by listening a lot to you. But I also read a lot of interviews, and uh, so I've read a lot of interviews of you, uh, of your, um, of you talking to interviewers prior to this. And and most of the interviews, it's mentioned that you uh, studied with Charlie Hayden. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the interviews stop at that moment and go somewhere else. <laughs> and this is partly why I do this interview series, because in a lot of interviews, they stop right in the most interesting moment for me. Yeah. So I'm, I really want to ask you how it was to study with him and what he has shown you and what his process was te for teaching. Um, that's a, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about you know, when I discovered Charlie's music at that time, we were talking about, you know, 13, 14, 15, something like that. And I first, I think the first recording I got, uh, that Charlie was on was, was, uh, one of the ECM, um, 
uh, Old New Dreams records. I think the one called Old, Old New Dreams, if that's ECM. Um, mm. And and from that, I went backwards into in backward back in time to to you know and discovered all the classic Ornette Quartet records um, with Dewey and or, or with uh, with uh, Don Cherry and and right. so that it's interesting that I mean now thinking about it after all these years is like that was a thread that kind of pushed uh, so uh, that led to so many aspects of, of my life and my growth as a musician because I listened to Charlie and I got obsessed with that music and the early um, Ornette quartets with Billy Higgins and and um, and uh, it it kind of it, it drew me at some point then to go to CalArts because I heard Charlie was there, but I didn't know anything about CalArts and what an amazing school it is and, and, uh, and uh, how much they had to offer. Like I was uh, at that time, I was just kind of planning on moving to New York. I was going to, you know, finish high school and, and, and uh, let me play around LA a little bit, but the whole thing was that I'm just going to go to New York and then, I heard about this audition up at Cal Arts and I just knew that Charlie was there. And so the only reason I went to the audition was to meet Charlie. And, um, and then from that, I, I went to the audition and, and, um, David Reitstein who heads the program there and, um, Paul Novros, wonderful sax saxophonist. And, um, Nick England, who was the dean of music, and they said, "Do you want to go to a school here?" And I was like, "Yeah, well, what do you, you know, kind of like, what do you do? Like, what, what is that, you know?" And I found out, you know, from that, I was able to study with Charlie and um, Fred Tinsley, who was in the L.A. Philharmonic, uh, incredible teacher as well, an incredible bass player. Um, anyway, it. it it opened up just like a whole bunch of stuff. And then when I moved to New York, Charlie was so uh, helpful in connecting me with a lot of the musicians that some, mm -hmm. some of whom I still play with today. Um, but studying with Charlie was kind of very loose. And sometimes it would just be like, let's go have coffee. And we'd sit there and I kind of took it upon myself to just ask him a lot of questions I didn't study that much privately with him. It was mostly like working within a group mm -hmm. or just or just hanging out with him or going to gigs with him if he was playing around Los Angeles or at school we would do stuff instead of, you know, having a lesson we would play duo in the main gallery at lunchtime. You know, just mm. stand there in a corner with our bass in this big space with our bases and just play, you know, those kind of really, um, but when I did have time to, to talk to him one-on-one, -on -one, I would just kind of, I would listen kind of like what you described getting ready for this interview is just like listen to a lot of his stuff and then come up with things that I really wanted to, because left to his own devices, he would just tell anecdotes and jokes. That was his thing. And really corny <laughs> jokes, bad jokes. And, it was hilarious, but then it was like, okay, well, let's do this. 
And then one of the greatest things about um, my experience at CalArts with Charlie was that during the time I was there, so it's like mid eighties, um, he, he recorded rejoicing. I think that was one of the, re the trio record with Pat and Billy mm -hmm. Higgins, Pat Matheny and Billy Higgins, uh, song X, Mm. Uh, which, you know, is un still one of my f most amazing record. Mm. And um, one of the um, Ballad of the Fallen, I think it just come out, um, which the Liberation Music Orchestra. Mm. So he, he was recording all this music. And then as he do it, and then there was a something with Keith Jarrett. Oh, shit. So when he would do these rec record recording sessions, then he'd bring all the sheet music and we would ah, great. create a class. We, we would just put together a, an ensemble and, and everybody was really eager to do that um, in, the, in the band and just sort of play. So I remember doing a concert of all song X, you know, we do that. We'd play the music. Maybe Charlie would play some and I'd play some. Hmm. And then sometimes we play together or whatever, but uh, he'd bring whatever that music was. So it was a great way to learn it, you know, just to because it brought you into the process of, of that's beautiful. And, and yeah. his thinking about how how he approached it. And so that was so it was very informal in a lot of ways. Hmm. So, and but you and. You know when he'd show up, he'd just come with a, you know, whatever, a notebook with some music and then somebody, somebody grab it. We'd run down to the office and make photocopies. And then we'd, we'd go, okay, well, we want to play this song and this song and this song. And he'd be going, you know, and then he would just sort of co coach us on it. So there was, it was a great way to, wow. um, great way to learn actually. Yeah. Did you talk to him about sound production? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot. But it, it was it was it was really funny because at the same time I was studying with you know with Charlie, I was I was studying with Fred Tinsley, and Fred was this you know uh, he had he was such a great teacher. Um, he passed away. Fred passed away about four years ago, but he was in the L.A. Philharmonic for forty years or something for a really long time. And for 30 some years, but before that he had lived in, in New York and he was in the New York Phil for a little bit. And, but he was also really active in the loft scene downtown in the, uh, I, I don't know when this would be like early seventies. <clears throat> and so he had played a lot with Dexter Gordon yeah. and, uh, a, a bunch of great jazz musicians, um, and when he played uh, jazz, he sounded a lot like Wilbur Ware. Mm. But when I was working with him, you know, he kind of reworked my technique. And there was a lot of um, what I know now to be, uh, you know, Alexander Technique ideas uh, relative to playing the bass, using the weight of your body and the, and the way that you can move and, and balance and sound production without... Um, without gripping, but just using the weight of your, your body to play the instrument. Relaxation. Because to that point I was, 
I had had some guidance. Um, I had a great teacher named Monty Budwig, who was active around Los Angeles when I was younger. And he had helped me some, but a lot of what Fred was doing was kind of reworking my technique and really getting, uh, you know, working with the bow and getting a center on the sound. And so working with Fred and this is a long way around to the, your question about uh, Charlie, but Charlie was way into these, these um, gut strings that had um, uh, like a nylon wrapped gut. They're really mm -hmm. thick. And they bowed like they sounded like shit. When you bow them, this is like like they they, they were rough uh, mm. to bow. And he was always trying to, and they were super expensive, but he would get free sets of them. And he was always trying to keep. He's come on, man, you gotta do this. You gotta like. And I was working with Fred, and there was no way I could have one instrument that that I could, you know, practice, you know, two or three hours a day with the bow or whatever, mm. and then you know, and work on these things that Fred was working on and do these things. So I had to like, kind of, um, uh, so it was kind of a running joke. Charlie was always trying to give me these golden spiral strings. And I was like, um, and I would put them on. And then when I put them on, put them on, I, I felt like all I did was sound, you know, like some guy trying to play like Charlie Hayden, <laughs> because I, like that suddenly would just, you just play that and you hear it and you feel it on your finger and the way those strings were, and and it's still to this day if I if I play on an instrument like that it, it just takes me right to that spot. But yeah. for me, uh, you know, finding my own sound was very um, very much influenced by both of them in that way. Mm -hmm. And I I still you know and you know f definitely f uh, physically thinking of things, trying to think of uh, you know things in the way that that uh, was taught from Fred mm. and, but sonically I, I hear so much of Charlie. So it's, it's kind of whatever it is now for me. Yeah. But. Hmm. Wow. Now I want to see uh, a video of these classes where you would teach you the music of Sun <laughs> X and stuff like that. Wow. Um, another yeah. one of my favorite bands is, uh, is the one with, uh, you know, Chris's, Chris Potter's quartet with Kevin Hayes and you and Bill Stewart. And, uh, but maybe before we go there, another one of my favorite records of his is Gratitude. And I just want to uh, know uh, a little bit how, how it came to, to that configuration of the quartet with Brian. And also, um, yeah, maybe that, that comes back to, to, how we talked about working differences with Brian and, and Bill, but um, anything that you would like to share from that recording, uh, gratitude and the tour, because I also have a lot of bootlegs from the tour and it's, it's so great to see how you guys oh, wow. work, work this music, especially yesterday. I went for a run listening to a recording from Cheltenham uh, of that band. And I think that was a tour that came after the recording was done and you played everything slower than on the recording, which I thought was unusual because the, you know, especially when we talk about miles, you would record something and then it would just get faster and faster. You'd like right, right. the other, the other day I listened to the first recording of walking, you know, of, of miles and it's super slow. And then 
mm-hmm. you go to to four and more and it's or even after that so that was a nice moment how you guys settled into those super slow uh tempos i'm not sure what i'm actually asking but i just love that band so much and that record maybe you can share some yeah. memories from that i i'm really uh curious to hear some of these things that you yeah i um actually i listened to that record um in april or may this year and i was really like it took me back like remembering a lot of that music because i had i had not listened to it since since we made it which is kind of typical of a lot of things that i do uh is like i kind of you know want to make them and move you know then move on to the whatever you know um or if if the band is actively in it i don't really want to you know revisit you know if we're touring with it i'm not going to necessarily revisit what we just did mm-hmm. and just you know because you're already you know you do it once and then to me you know already looking at at, at new ways to approach the same music so sometimes it can be actually a hindrance to spend too much time ruminating on on, on one thing. Um, but unfortunately, my memory for that kind of stuff is not that great. Like I don't, like tours go, and I just remember it, uh, and and listening to music. It's it's some beautiful writing. I mm-hmm. mean that I thought I, and and you know, the way, the way that Chris put that together and, and how he would, um, you know, really get the essence of each person that he was writing for and thinking about in a way that was really unique to Chris, but also it was uh, just really beautifully done. And I, and, um, um, so I don't know if there's much more I can add to that. Uh, the you know the the quartet recordings i have so we toured a lot especially with bill with that uh quartet and the, and the recordings that we made at that time so i think there's there's one live from the vanguard oh yeah man i, I love that one and but um also the gratitude the, sorry i i want to stay a little bit with gratitude because Right in, I think in the middle of the tour, or maybe it was different tours, Brian is playing most of the first half or something, and then uh, Clarence Penn steps in. And I love how he changes the the atmosphere of the band. The It has another sort of an edge to it. And uh, it also changes mm-hmm. how you guys play. It has a different atmosphere and a different different vibe. As, you know, Whenever there's a different, uh, a different drummer, he will change the the sound of the band. But I, I thought it was very interesting what he did with the music. Do you remember some of that? Yeah, but uh, you know, I'd say that that's that. There's a lot of bands that exist where you change one individual and the band is still kind of not changing. Mm. And and I've been in and I've been in situations where. I might be the one stepping into that role and then you feel that it's not, um, that it's, that it's, uh, that the, the rest of the band isn't adapting so much. 
And but I just like to say, you know, like with relative to to um, you know Chris and and uh, Kevin and myself, it's like you know everybody's really consciously deciding to kind of shed the preconceptions of the of of how the other drummer approached it and try and really you know and Kevin and 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 Chris are you know I know very well that they they would you know really listen for the things that the new that that Clarence could bring to the music yeah that would be different than um than Brian mm. and so I could see it change you know yeah specific stories I don't remember too much yeah but. did Bill ever play this music because sometimes in my mind I I play mind games like like you did with you know four and more imagining maybe Elvin playing playing that music or whatever or with gratitude I was I was I was always wondering because I know the other quartets sound so well also you know from all the other mm -hmm. recordings how would it have sounded like with with Bill on drums you know I guess we probably did but I'd have to ask Chris mm, yeah. um, or Bill okay I yeah. remember but I but, yeah I, I mean because we toured a lot especially with Bill you know during you know uh before gratitude and and after so can you maybe talk a little bit about the the process of of that quartet the working process whenever there was time to figure out a new composition of chris's or um uh, did you talk about the music a lot in that group or um how did you guys work um My recollection is we never we didn't rehearse much, mm. um, but we played together quite a bit. Mm. So, and and before and during that period, I had um, other projects with Chris. I had other projects with with uh, Kevin. Other projects with Brian. Other projects with Bill. Combinations. So we you know because uh, we we all kind of moved. All those musicians moved to New York around the same time, as I recall, uh, around 1990, give or take a year or two. So I met all those guys in the first months of living in New York. And so it, it became kind of a, <clears throat> for me, like a, just a, a, a real, you know, central, a, a real community of musicians that You know, and, and in the beginning, none of us really had any work. We just played together a lot, you know, and then little by little, we started to, to, you know, hook up different things and tours and recording and, and whatnot. But um, so, uh, but specifically for, for, for the tours with Chris's quartet, we never we didn't rehearse that much. And then Chris would a lot of times just, he's, you know, insanely prolific, uh, composer. So he would often be like sound checks is here's, here's something else. Here's what I'm thinking with this. And, and, and <clears throat> so a lot of it, as I recall, would, would grow on the, on the tour as we'd go along, mm. you know, adding a song or two songs, each evening and then he'd write or rewrite stuff on the road. Um, 
you know, he, he's insane in that way. I mean, he'll, he'll take, he'll say what he's, uh, yeah, I took a week off. And then what he really did was write, you know, 12 yeah. new songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So that, that's kind of the, you know, but I, we didn't, we didn't rehearse a lot in advance of the tours, as I recall. Mm. You know, one or two get togethers, that would be it. Mm -hmm. In, uh, I think, 2002, it was, um, I have a recording of you stepping in with the Wayne Charter Quartet at North Sea Jazz Festival with an orchestra mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. Man, I love how you play uh, in with this group. And it takes me back to the first thing I said to you, which is keeping your ego in check. Um, when I first heard it, I was feeling for you. Um, I don't know, because the I think it's only three tracks or something. Maybe it was more in the concert, or I don't know if you played more concerts with them. But to me, I, I only had those three tracks, so I was listening to it. And it starts out with Wayne and Danilo to, doing in a very extended duet. Beautiful piece, and they go places. And for me, it's very personal because Danilo references uh, Federico Mompo's, uh, one of his pieces. Mm. And he's my guy. Federico Mompo is one of my favorite composers. And Wayne plays over that composition. I don't know if Ray Wayne realizes that he's playing over Mompo's music at that moment, but mm -hmm. this is such a beautiful moment for me. But still, I'm in that moment and I'm thinking, wow, what, is, what does Scott think about right now? I'm sure he's enjoying the music, but still, you're stepping in in, a, in such a close, you know, close working group and you have a lot of responsibility as the bassist, as does everybody else, of course, but still, and there's an orchestra, you know, and then mm -hmm. there's the first moment where the, the other members come in and you jump right, jump right into it, you know, but it doesn't oh. feel forced at all. It feels like, yeah, you're just enjoying to play and, Obviously, I'm sure you feel comfortable with Brian and, and Danilo, and but I don't know how, how the process was for you to, to, you know, on the one hand, prepare for this concert. And also, uh, yeah, maybe you can share um, some reminiscences of that. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm curious to hear. I've never, I've never heard it. But, oh, okay. but I do remember that um, uh, I was, I think I was on, I was on tour with Chris with the quartet i think we were in um perugia or something and i got a call and i was gonna i was doing or maybe the quartet was then going to go to north sea and they asked it can you come early and um take an early flight and play this concert with wayne and i said yeah if you know if i can make it and i remember that I arrived, uh, my flight arrived in Amsterdam and they went to, to the concert hall and, and there was going to be a rehearsal sound check and then the concert, that was going to be it. And I arrived late and the whole orchestra was there and I had to pull my bass out of the flight case and just kind of go up and, and go into the music. The good, you know, I definitely, you know, having, um, And I do remember the 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 feeling of like we we set up very tight as I recall, mm. and that Wayne was very close to me. 
I think. I mean, you've seen the video, so I don't know. It's no video, uh, but it's I just remember, audio. Oh, okay. The feeling of like we're we, this the quartet was like really tight in as a unit with with Wayne just right there, and and I had played a fair amount with Danilo, but a lot with Brian. So I had, you know, and and there. You know, and I, and I forget the circumstances, but it was like John couldn't make the concert and I just stepped in and I came in late. And um, so I didn't have a lot of information about what to go on. And my my memory of the music was that, <clears throat> you know, it'd have these, these written passages for orchestra with some some bass lines and things. And, and then then it would just say open or it would say, you know, just to. And then that was the quartet spot. <laughs> then yeah. we just like so trying to thread these things together without knowing where the destination is is really is really tricky. But um, if you have you know Wayne and Danilo and Brian as your guides, you just really again just like surrendering to that and trying to find you know, and then looking for those moments where it might be important for you to instigate something or for you to bring some power or um, intention to the music. But then knowing when those other moments, when it's like, um, when to wait to see where, where things might go. And that's, that's the, those are the big decisions, you know, where, where, whether you're going to, you're going to put yourself right in the center of this, or you're going to wait on the periphery and then you're going to, move in some other you know open this door and go in through this way or mm. stay over here and i do remember asking wayne there was there was something and it and the part had had written on it said um to, it had bars and it was a very it was a specific number of bars that was supposed to happen where we were supposed to groove maybe there was a a, a a tonal center or something and we were supposed to play and it said 16 crossed out it said 12 crossed out 32 crossed out it, it you know and then it didn't have anything <laughs> and and i remember saying and and the the conductor was talking to the rest of the orchestra about something about boeings or something like that and I, and I, you know, Lee, uh, Wayne was right there and I had my, my music was right. Like where he could see my music. We were like very close. And I said, Wayne, um, whatever it was like letter B, how many bars is letter B? And he goes, he, he told me this story. He's like, suddenly we went on this journey. He's like, you know, it's kind of like when you're when you start on a journey and you're going on a path and you don't know the exact direction of the path and it goes this way and it's, it's, it was some kind of story and I don't remember what it was, mm. but the funny thing was, is that this, this little section was a specific number of bars. <laughs> and then I hear, I hear Brian go, I hear Brian just after the whole thing's over, he just laughed and I laughed and, and then Brian leans over and he goes, <laughs> yeah. and that's I was like, beautiful. All right. And the story he told me was it was beautiful. It was about you know, just 
you know, finding your way in the world. I don't know. It was this whole thing. It was great. Uh, but, um, you know, that, those kind of, that kind of situation is just, it's, it's how much can you trust the people you're with and, and to, to, you know, it's, um, and then if I'm really, really, if my, my ears are really open and my mind is really open. And when I see that there's something in the music, that's, that's a role that I can play. That's, that seems obvious to me, I'll play that role for that time. Like maybe there's a bass line I'm playing and the strings are playing over the top of it. I don't know, whatever. Then I can do, you know, I, I know that, but then in other moments you have to shed that and go really what's going on now. You know? Yeah. Especially in open sections and when your uh, uh, spontaneous composition is happening is really taking the cues of where the energy might be going. And, and, and with musicians like that, um, they'll help guide you. But as soon as you get too focused in on what you're doing, and maybe you're thinking about your intonation or your volume or your articulation or something specifically, that takes your energy inward. And you have to be really careful that that's something you do when you're practicing. That's something you do when you're at home. You, you put in that kind of analytical mind. Mm. When you're in a situation like that that's so open you need to really shed that you need to really spread your attention again widely so that you're able to take whatever clues might come yeah. from something and it could be very subtle things that brian might play or or, or voicing or rhythm that's happening or something and um so it's it's an exercise in keeping your your mind open and your ears open to 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 what's happening around you. Mm. The worst thing you can do is is then to, to and, you know, um, and we all it happens to all of us. You know, nervous energy, your your attention, um, your your first thing that happens, uh, you know, when you become self conscious or nervous is you your breathing becomes shallow. Yeah, your your um, your ability to really uh, empathize or see what's going on outside of yourself, it shrinks. It, it goes or it goes away completely. Also, for, um, felt the the listening part is. I mean, uh, being able to identify notes maybe or or shapes or whatever, uh, it yeah. becomes very very. If it if it's good when you're relaxed, that's good. But if you know once you start self doubting and then thinking about yourself too much. That gets limited. It becomes more limited. Every, everything shrinks, basically. Yeah. And it's it's a is a it's just as much a it's physical response as a as a psycho a mental response or a, mm. you know a, a, your your ability to um, assess the situation and decide how to respond. So it's less of a response and more of a reaction. Mm. And then you, you, you get tight and then, then you, then somebody, you know, it, it, it happens a lot when, you know, in, in challenging music, we get lost all the time from each other. Mm. The more we stretch and, the, you know, with the, with musicians that I've played with forever, it seems, you know, that we're always trying to like keep moving and keep trying new things. And, 
and and you're getting out of your comfort zone and something happens and suddenly we don't know where one is anymore. Mm. And what do you do in that moment? You have to really then take a breath and listen harder than anything. Um, yeah. And sometimes there's no, no there moment be a, where you listen more more closely than when you're right. lost. <laughs> and there's two ways to deal with it and both of them are correct in different moments, which would be like, let me find out where his one is and, mm. and you know, oh, I obviously, you know, it depends on the circumstance or it's like, here, let me get, let me give a clue. But with, with musicians that I know really well, especially drummers that we've talked about, Brian or Bill or, you know, is, is that I can hear really subtle clues that come. They don't have to give me like this huge yeah. one, you know, Or baby, they can give me just like I can just t tell many times where something is, and as as we, so that and no performance situation is perfect. Like you know, there's issues with sound in different um, venues, and you can't hear very well, or the the uh, or or the acoustics are bad, or the instruments you're struggling with this or that. There's always things. Mm. Um, there's no perfect situation. And, and that's another way that you can, that people often get to the point where they can't, I should speak for myself, where if I'm thinking about, you know, what I wish something was, what's what the situation, what reality yeah. I wish for a different reality is what I'm doing. Mm. And that's always a bad place to go. Yeah. Because you can't do anything with that. Mm. You can't. You, you can't, can't work with that. Fix anything. You can't. Yeah. You can't. Um, so. You know that it's 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 just re really. You know, and I find I find that for me, if I feel that in any particular situation, it's always starts with the breath. Um, To, to 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 you know, or even like a really physically difficult thing that I'm doing on the on the bass. Bass is a really strange instrument, and sometimes there's like a lot of as, mm -hmm. as you noticed, I'm sure. But there's a lot of physical things that can happen, and and or that can challenge you, and so it's really important just to be able to 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 maintain. Um, you know, equanimity in the, in those kind of situations. So that because as soon as you, you're, you're going to lose the battle of like, say you're just trying to play a really fast tempo or something like that. Mm. Kind of related to that, this, what we we're talking about is that it's, it's really important to maintain that breath and, and mm. equanimity so that because the, the second you start playing through adrenaline, Then everything begins to tighten up. It might help you to get over a situation for a, for a minute, yeah. But it's not gonna it's not gonna work in the yeah. long run. Yeah. And basically, what it is is you know you're getting less oxygen to the muscles. The muscles tighten up, and the thing you know then then you can you can get through something for a second, but it it won't. You you know. How did you learn thing, this? From Fred. Well, from a lot of people, but Fred Tinsley. 
was big on that. Like, you know, um, that all, you know, the sound really is going to come from, from your whole body mm. and, and knowing that, I mean, to watch him play was such a joy because he just like take the bow, play German bow, he's a big guy. And, um, you know, really open chest, big breath. And then when he just draw the bow across the strings, you just see no effort. His hand would be like, like the bow is going to fall out of his hand <laughs> and this huge sound comes out mm. and you just go, how the fuck did he do? You know, it's like mm. this big sound with just, it looked like there was nothing happening. And that's, you know, that was kind of the, so watching him was more, uh, and, 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 what what he said you know what he told me but we worked a lot on long tones and and playing very slowly for a long time mm. uh and that to me was is and and still now even um you know if if i'm if i only have a half hour to practice it's going to be things like that that are very yeah. slow not always the same things not even the same they're not particularly scales or things that I go through that I, but it's like finding the sound and whether it's pizzicato or, or arco, it's, it's finding the center of the, the pitch and, and re reacquainting yourself with how your body feels in that moment. Hmm. Um, and, uh, recognizing things about where your mind is, where your body, where your body is, in terms of, you know, are you agitated? Are you, are you relaxed? Are you tired? Are you hungry? You, you know, you start to see those things and be able to go, okay, that's what's happening now. Mm. Good. Okay, fine. Move on, you know, mm. find the center of the sound. And so that was a lot of Fred stuff mm. that, that I learned. It was amazing working with him. Wow. Now I want to hear him play. Is there something that uh, that you could recommend for people to check out him? Um, I'll have I'll, I'll I don't know. Honestly, there's there's no I don't have any recordings, commercially available recordings except mm. except for stuff with the with the Philharmonic. But um, <clears throat> I do remember when I first. <laughs> is a great example of how Fred, uh, he was teaching when he was teaching Cal arts, he was also teaching at UCLA in Los Angeles. And, and, uh, I went to see him play his rec uh, recital with, and I don't remember what piece they were playing. And I had just started playing with Fred and he was playing his, his recital, his faculty recital at Royce hall, which is a very large theater beautiful theater and um so it was bass and piano and for some reason i guess their their uh the page turner didn't show didn't show up so they asked me to turn pages for for the uh uh for the first piece of the night and to turn pages for the pianist And I remember him start, and I don't, man, I wish I remember what piece it was, but he started out and it was just solo bass. And like I said, it's just like so effortless and it just filled the room. And I'm just like, wow, 
So I'm sitting on stage next to this pianist, this woman who I didn't know. And, and then she starts playing and I'm just totally swept up by the music. I remember this. And then suddenly my heart just went like up into my throat. It was like, I'm supposed to be doing something. Like, <laughs> like suddenly I look up and I don't know where she is, like where we are in the music. Yeah. And I, I start looking at the phrases and I'm seeing the phrases and I think I know where it is. I reach up and I grab and I go like this. And she goes, <laughs> <laughs> like I totally, fuck, like I screwed up. My only thing that I was supposed to do was turn the page, you know, oh. I don't know. Wow. I don't know how that relates to anything, but I just thought of that. You it got was lost so funny. In the music. I, I was speaking of like moments when you totally lose like I was so wrapped up in the music that I forgot that there was only one reason I was on stage. Yeah. And yeah. So <laughs> I failed on that one. But, yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I'm always interested in what you, um, what someone learns from his peers. And maybe we could go into detail what you learned from your bass uh, colleagues. Who, who came up with you? Um, did you hang out with a lot of them and did you exchange ideas or were there people that maybe were a little bit older than you when you when you came to New York that that helped you a great deal or uh, yeah, maybe you can share something in that regard. Yeah. Um, recently I've been I've been corresponding a lot with Steve Swallow who I did watch some of Steve's thing that you did and oh. I didn't, I'm, I'm yet to watch the whole thing, but it, he's one of my, uh, heroes of life, not mm. just on the instrument, but, but just as a human and, um, yeah. and, but forget it. I mean, it's, you know, a composer, um, and he's somebody like I can, I can remember him. I think it was when I did magic line, And he actually sent me a letter, like, you know, the ones that used to come in the post. Yeah. You know, <laughs> remember those? <laughs> yeah. um, and now we, we've been um, we've been corresponding by email a lot. But um, just to, to connect with somebody and, and, um, and from Steve, just I, I, like I, he's he's just always been so. Um, you know, inspiring and kind of rooting for me and helping me and just really thoughtful ideas about recordings that I did and stuff and, and mm. songwriting. And, and, um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, that's been really great in, in the last, you know, since this pandemic started, we've been kind of emailing back and forth and I love to talk to him about anything. Mm. You know. Yeah. And, Me too. <laughs> and Carla. So mm -hmm. Carla's so amazing. And, and, um, and, um, yeah. So. Mm. Maybe to go back to it. I mean, people that came up with you are maybe, uh, somebody like Larry Grenadier or something like that, mm -hmm. that generation. Um, did you, did you correspond with them as well? I mean, back in, back in the day, hung out with them exchange ideas about the base and how to uh, learn more. Oh, de yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. uh, with, 
you know, friends, uh, Larry and um, John Patucci and mm. other friends. Like I, I, the only times we kind of have the time and cross paths, though, since none of us are touring now, maybe it should be easy because they don't live so far from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but usually just, you know, uh, crossing paths backstage and checking out and just seeing how, again, like how different people produce, get produce different results on the instrument yeah. and how they, um, you know, I've talked to Larry a lot about, you know, how, how he deals with, uh, different, um, you know, a amplifying the bass in different situations and getting the sound that he does. It's such an amazing sound. And the same with John and, and, uh, um, Actually, there's a recording that I, uh, a two bass recording that I did with John that that uh, a friend of ours, Benjamin Koppel, put together. Mm -hmm. That's never been released, um, and I'm hoping we can actually mix that at some point. That was, I don't know, we recorded that maybe three or four years ago. Duet? Uh, no, it's it's uh, John and I and uh, Benjamin Koppel and Satoshi Takeshi. Uh, mm -hmm. It was an incredible percussionist mm. um kind of has a unique uh it's not even really a drum set he generally sits on the floor and has you know but amazing feel in in just an, an incredible uh, mm. uh musician i i i don't want to call him a drummer but because he what he does is so beyond that is uh um but you know, just being in this in this in the same room with somebody like John and 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 uh, making sound and and talking about stuff and it's 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 great. I learned so much. Yeah, I might be going out on a limb here, but in the past days, as I said, I've been listening so much to you, and there were moments uh, where I felt like. I want to ask you about Anders Jormin, if you like Anders Jormin's playing. I don't really know. His okay. Okay. But Maybe now, that's... See, you have, I hope you're making like a really great list for me. <laughs> right? When this is I, over, I expect uh, an email with like all the things that I got to listen to. Okay. I think I think I, I think I can remember most of it. Okay. <laughs> I'll send you a reminder email. I mean, we haven't talked about Jim Hall yet. Right before I called you, I was listening to the Magic Meeting. You know, and what a what an amazing recording that is, and how great you sound with Lewis Nash together. That's just, a, I mean, incredible. And that recording, I mean, I think it's live, right, I, at the Village Vanguard mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. And while listening to that, I was reading the liner notes to the duet recording, uh, Jim Hall with basses, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, he talks about your first meeting or something. And he's he, he talks about uh, you uh, being able to to follow anywhere, you know, and you talked about this thing uh, already a lot with Wayne and, and with the thing about seeing the big picture and i think it's very connected to what he's talking about following being open to follow as you know and then the other day i was listening to another bootleg maybe that 
needs to be on the list uh, of you guys playing um, Jim Howell's music with with uh, Terry Clark and Chris Potter and a string quartet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the string quartet was very much involved with you guys. It, it wasn't like the typical, here's some chords and here maybe a melody or something. It was like intertwining when you guys were improvising and it was really, you were, mm -hmm. it seemed like, I felt like, I think I was doing the dishes or something. I felt like, wow, these guys are, they must have rehearsed this stuff a lot <laughs> because it felt like with the string quartet, it doesn't really happen like that um uh, there has to be some effort behind it a little bit you know i was mm -hmm. wondering how it was to work with jim on on new music on on different projects and and what you've learned from him we you man uh that's a big subject because um jim i started playing with jim not that long after i moved to new york so maybe 1991 and i worked with him off and on in different things until until the uh the last concert that we did at lincoln center right before he passed and so it's like 20 25 years or something um and he you know he's he was one of the most generous um people on the planet that I ever met. And, um, and that was true of, of his, of his approach to music too, you know, um, and, and really selfless when it came to music. It's like, I'm pretty sure that if Jim, um, if Jim could just play behind a screen, you know, but make live music with his friends and nobody could actually see him do it. I think that's what he would have preferred, you know, <laughs> like in a way, like be involved in it, be able to, to, um, to, to interact and, and to be with people, but not, but the spotlight, not on him, you know, that, mm. that was Jim. <clears throat> and you reminded me in, in, um, one of the favorite things I love to do with Jim was playing free, uh, mm. you know, with no preconceptions uh, and he would always apologize. And you, you mentioned, uh, Jim Hall with basses. So we did these things. I think they're called abstract one, abstract yeah. two or something like that. And, uh, there's, there's one on there with, um, George Mraz and me and Jim. And I and just those moments with Jim were, were absolutely the best. And then you'd, you'd finish it because everything that he played was a, was a, was a composition always. And, um, so when he thought, you know, when there was a moment with no preconceived, uh, or no written down music, no pre preconceived form, it was still that just that thread of melody that was always uh, it, it melody and texture. And he, and it was just amazing what he would come up with. So like, yeah. And then always at the end of it, he'd just turn and he'd go, man, sorry, man. <laughs> and he'd be like, what, what, are you, what are you apologizing for? 
He also had this really funny thing when we were on the road, especially if we were we were touring, you know, duo. We did a lot of duo touring, and and uh, which was some of the the greatest moments of my musical life, just because mm-hmm. I just play acoustic standing next to Jim, and and uh, and it was such a an, an organically great feeling, you know, just to. Do, you know to play with Jim and and um, and also just to really embrace that space that he you know always which I've said this many times but if you played something just because you were nervous and you wanted you felt something needed to go in this space it would be it, it felt like the stupidest thing you ever if you were <laughs> if you were next to Jim it would be like oh if you just played something because there was too much space, it would be just, you just, I don't know how to describe it. It would just feel mm. like, ah, oh, God, why did I do that? Mm. So you'd really have to just set, step back. And, and then his, his level of dynamics, you know, would go from, from a really zero dynamics, the amp off completely, you know, to, you know, and it, but a huge range of dynamics, but the real loud part was not, by most bands standpoint would be their bottom in mm. but the important thing that he taught me was that you know it's not a matter of you know how how loud you play or it's it's the dynamic range of of the music that you're playing of the performance or the or the the piece mm. So with him, it would be like I'd be playing acoustic and feel like I can't play any softer than this on the bass, <laughs> just like, and feel like oh, you know. And and what it does is it really it it had this amazing effect when you're playing for an audience. They would just draw people in. You know? People would just lean in when we do mm. concerts. And, and um, <laughs> I remember doing uh, some concerts with Bill Frizzell and Joey Barron and Jim. Oh, yeah. at uh, Orvieto and doing a few of the concerts that we did I think I think two of them were completely acoustic in in halls that had like you know 500 seat and um, I remember the sound engineers getting very nervous and saying you can't do this blah blah and they say well we're going to do it you know? mm. so Jim would be playing at this volume and Bill would be trying to get softer than Jim and I'd be playing acoustic and Joey because Joey's so brilliant yeah. to create uh, any kind of energy he wanted at any volume. He had the control to do it so he could create this incredible. So it had, it was really, um, it was really dramatic, you know, mm because it would just draw people at first you'd hear people shuffling and moving in the audience. And eventually they just really settled because they, they really wanted to hear what was happening and the music would just expand out from there. And, and, um, so, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but you know, playing with Jim was, was as good as it gets Mm. for sure. Wow. You also made a record, right, with that combination? Yeah. Um, well, you it's mentioned actually- the one, the one magic meeting. That so that was a live one. That that was the only one that I I co-produced with with a friend of ours, Brian Camilio. 
Yeah. And Brian has uh, Artishare. Right. Yeah. Company and and um, he put out the one that you were talking about. So there's Duo with Jim and Bill. I think yeah. it's on one disc, and then one disc is me and and Joey with Jim and Bill. And it's incredible. Right? I, I love hearing the two of them play together because yeah, you can. It's it's like you you're just confronted with the just the that thing of like Bill's totally unique Bill way of playing, <laughs> Bill Frizzell. Yeah. But how it comes directly from Jim. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, yeah. So connected. But then he does his own, you know, it's, he's just completely unique. But the thread of, of that. And I, you know, I remember the first times that we, we did, I think we did a, a live at the a week at the Vanguard or something with Bill. And Bill, out of uh, deference to Jim, just plugged directly from his guitar into his amp, like totally basic sound. And then Jim, I think trying to maybe, you know, uh, as homage to Bill or something, brought every electronic <laughs> box that he had. And the funny thing was with, with Jim is he didn't really know how to use the stuff that he had. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds so, so great. Would, it's 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 so personal it's what so he gets great. out of the, those effects. Yeah. I mean, also on the magic uh, uh, meeting, nobody sounds like yeah. that. Nobody tries things that he's doing with with those pedals. Yeah. Well, the thing he he just saw it as another um, um, kind of compositional device in a way. Yeah, it doesn't sound like, like he an effect. Would, he would just go like, "I'm going to change the texture," but then he'd lean over, and he'd have like a a harmonizer hmm. but he didn't really he couldn't always see what what uh what interval it was going to come out with hmm. so he'd look at me kind of like he didn't know it was going to be a fifth or a minor second and he'd lean over and he'd push the button and he'd look at me and then he'd play the note and let's say it's a minor second and then he just bases the rest of his solo on that so it was wow. like a so it was a way of kind of Forcing him into a new thing mm. and a thing that he did quite often and I know he did it with students as well is like detune the guitar just randomly yeah. and then create something and he, he was very much into that and a lot of people who know Jim might only know him from playing certain standards and whatnot. Yeah, but his um, You know, he he was the real bridge between um uh, you know, jazz guitar the way it was, and and modern guitar. I mean, you, you can hear his the 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 influence on so many different guitars. You mentioned, you know, yeah, Wolfgang or yeah. Uh, Bill, Sco, Sco, Matheny, Sco, totally. I mean, they all, you know. But he loves them back. That's what I love. You know, he loves yeah. them back, and he admires them back. You know, mm -hmm. I when yeah. I when I when I saw or heard this record with Frizzell and him, I I could I could feel his love for Frizzell, his admiration for you know, and vice versa, obviously. But but still, yeah. you know. Yeah, mm. incredibly open and 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 really curious too. You know, just like 
always asking questions. How'd you get that sound? Like he'd, mm. he'd hear something on the bass or something. And I know he did this with all those guitarists as well. When he'd play with them, he's like, how'd you do that? Wait, what? You know, <laughs> how did you get that? It was like, you know, up into his eighties and he's like, how do you do this? And how can we make something new? And he hated to talk about the past. Mm. Uh, he liked to talk about people. Mm. You know, if you said, you know, you, you know, question and answer things that we did and maybe, you know, clinics and whatnot were hilarious because somebody, somebody would come out with like in 1962, which you and Jimmy Drewfrey and blah, blah, blah. And what kind of strings did you use or talking about guitars or something? He just, he just, eyes would just glaze over and he'd just mm. be like, but if somebody asked you about Jimmy Drewfrey, yeah, he'd light up, like yeah. start telling story about the human connected with the mute and the music yeah. then it was then that's what interested him everything mm -hmm. else was just sort of like you know you know just some academic shit that he didn't yeah. want to deal with so he yeah. and it was really funny on on tours he would always try and rope me into interviews that where it was obvious that the interviewer only wanted to inter interview jim and then he would be scott you have to do this interview Jim, they don't want they don't want to talk to me. It's like, no, no. So he would like pull up a chair and then they and then he would do stuff like I remember him going, they would say, Mr. Hall, on this new record that you have out, blah, blah, blah. And then they and and uh, he would say, yeah, um, it was fun. And then he'd, he'd go, Scott, you have a new record out. <laughs> and so he would turn and start asking me, like he would just start asking me questions about how I wrote whatever and blah, blah, blah. It was hilarious. And then, you know, because he just didn't, he didn't want to talk about himself and he didn't want to talk about the past. Yeah. In the way that a lot of people do as mm -hmm. like that happened. And, you know, he's more interested in, in, um, relationships. Mm. And, and musical and personal relationships, and they were totally connected, you know. Yeah. There was no separation, you know, his love for Sonny. So if you, you know, or or Bill or or Joey Barron or, you know, he loved funny stories and, 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 and uh, you know, moments in music and, 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 but as a living thing. Yeah. As people, you know, as people, you know, when you're, and, and how it, if, how it is in this moment rather than just kind of sitting around talking about the past. Yeah. But he loved to share. I mean, he was, was super generous with younger musicians, obviously. Yeah. Mm. He, if somebody was, was coming from a, a truly curious and excited about music, you know, a, um, that's the first time I met Julian Lodge was, was playing with, with, uh, Jim and, and Kenny Wallison. And I think Julian was like 11 or some shit. And, uh, you know, and Jim, you know, you know, just uh, Julian told me all these stories later on, you know, about how, how Jim would just like, Hey, Oh, you're interested in the guitar. You know, Julian's like all starstruck it was like, mm. and just share things with people. Um, uh, so that, that's who he was, you know, and, and that's why he affected so many people. But, um, you know, what an inter innovator. I mean, you know, the textures that he got on the guitars, nobody else.
to do. Yeah. We're I mean, all trying, but <laughs> let's, <laughs> we're let's, all trying uh, to digest it. Let's close with uh, maybe you can tell us what um, that wasn't the royal us. Maybe <laughs> maybe you can tell me uh, uh, what your favorite recording of Jim is, or do you have do you have a favorite or what do you think of uh, the first? The the recording that he the the recording he did with uh, Charlie Hayden. Uh, although I haven't listened to it in a long time, it was beautiful. Um, the obvious ones would be like the bridge. Mm. It, it was, you know, first the um, the first thing that I heard or was conscious of yeah. when I was growing up. And uh, anything that he did with uh, Jimmy Jufri. Yeah. Uh, whatever the first ones of those in 1958, 1959. Um, um, parenthetically, as Jim, that was, that was always a term that he would use. Parenthetically, uh, I was just listening to this, the Jimmy Jufri three with Paul Blay. This is off subject, Paul Blay and, and, and Steve Swallow. Mm. There's a live concert from Stuttgart. That's like unbelievably great. I don't know that one. You know, I might. I just had it up. I was listening to it. I don't have it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, 1960, 1961. Mm. And I'm trying to think of the name of it. And it's a live thing. It's amazing. But um, I like Magic Meeting, even though I played on it. But, <laughs> and I don't think Jim liked the, the mix at all. Huh. Uh, but I love, yeah, I mean, so many things come to mind, but, and, and for sure, all the duo stuff that he did with Bill, I think that's, I love to hear yeah. them because I can, I can just close my eyes and imagine them both and, and, and remember them and, and, uh, and that they're, their their music is so you know, equally um, authentic and yeah. honest and uh, yeah, honest and, and, and great and flawed and just go like, this is what it is. This is what this moment is. And, and I'm always drawn to music that, that feels that way. It's not all polished uh, that, uh, yeah. Thank you. So I guess I don't have one favorite, Jim. But. That's the answer, yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned uh, a lot of great ones, so thank you. And thanks for doing this with me. It was really a pleasure to talk to you and very inspiring. Man, and Pablo, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to sometime we might make some music together. Oh, man, that would be a dream come true for me.